just occurred to me reading this gospel. It isn't in the gospel, but it occur- when I was about ready to go to seminary, uh, I was at St. Matthew's Church which, in San Mateo, which was my home parish, and I was, had done something, I can't remember, in the liturgy, and was standing at the door with Father Wilder at the end of the service, and uh, a woman came out and looked at Father, Fa- Father Wilder and said, Father Wilder, don't you think the Hail Mary is getting dangerously cro- close to Rome? And he said, why no, Helen, I think it's getting very close to the gospel according to St. Luke. Uh, Three readings today, one from 2 Samuel, the other from Romans, and then the gospel. Last Sunday, we had lessons and carols, and so the gospel that we read was not the gospel for last Sunday. uh, We read the gospel of the Annunciation, and it was also possible to extend it to include what is known as the Visitation where Mary goes to see Elizabeth, who is pregnant with John the Baptist, and to visit her. And a number of things emerged to to suit uh, Luke's theological purposes. And so I want to talk a little bit about that and uh, why it's important for us. We've switched gears on the fourth Sunday of Advent from a focus on the themes of Advent, which have to do with expectation, preparation, hope, all of the things that are part of the Advent season. One of them is silent waiting and how we understand the importance of waiting silently and that this silence can be, uh, help us in the process of greater clarity about God's will and purpose for us and certainly greater clarity about who we as the people of God, the church, understand ourselves as God's people in the world. So let me begin with Second Samuel and talk a little bit about uh, what's going on here. Nathan the prophet, by the way, Nathan the prophet is going to meet with David again as we move forward, and he's not best pleased with David's behavior. But that is down the road. So today he comes, and he speaks to David, and David speaks to Nathan and says, You know, I'm living in a house of cedar, But all this time since we've come out of Egypt, the Ark of the Covenant, the place where we keep the scrolls, has either resided in a tent or in some kind of a makeshift tabernacle. And uh, it's high time that we have a temple. It's high time that we have a place uh, where this uh, Ark can be properly housed and that that is important. So Nathan the prophet, like most prophets, Uh, says, you know, that is not an unimportant thing, but you need to understand the concept of the ark and of what kind of temple we're understanding this to be. Not just a physical temple, but that we're going to have reside here uh, David's dynasty. And that you're part of this and the continuity of the Davidic dynasty is part of our self-understanding in terms of what we mean by Messiahship. And the reason we read this reading in Advent is that it has something to do with how Messiah was understood in the time of Jesus. Because this goes through an evolution where we're yearning and hoping for the Messiahship of of. Uh, the person who was going to continue the halcyon days of King David. 
the halcyon days of King Solomon, where people's identity was very clear about who they were as the people of God, and that this restorative process after the exile in Babylon is still proceeding. This is when, at the time of Jesus. But by the time of Jesus, we also have the Dead Sea Scrolls. We also have the Essene community. We also have the possibility that John the Baptist, who we'll talk about in a minute, was connected in some way with the community at Qumran. And so we're interested now in what they were saying in their literature, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which also included all of the books of the Hebrew Bible, with the exception of Esther, and how we understand what it was they were thinking when they were thinking of Messiah. And so by the time of Jesus, the concept of Messiah had gone through an evolution where they accepted and understood the necessity of a Davidic Messiah, a kingly Messiah, but they also understood the necessity for a priestly Messiah. And many believed after the Christ event that these two things were combined in Jesus' words and works. And so we see here a text that early Christians used and said, you see, here's another example, that if we consulted our own sacred literature and understood the narrative and its continuity, we would have understood these texts with a little greater depth. And so we have set up for us now um, the concept of Messiah that we proclaim on Christmas, which will be both priestly and kingly. You know, it's very controversial, but a lot of biblical scholarship these days is about God becoming king. We don't mean theodicy, but what we do mean is how we understand the nature of kingship and what God's plan was for his people. So then we move to Romans, because Paul has a version of this. It's not alluded to completely in this chapter, in chapter 15, but it's an important idea that we need to hold as well. Let me just say something about this, because I've been watching YouTube videos, as you know. And uh, I watched one yesterday, which reminded me of something I learned in seminary, and we forget this. When Paul wrote the letter to the, the, the epistle to the Romans, he then sent it to the Romans by some version of the ancient mail. When he wrote it, he didn't think he was writing something that was going to be in the Bible. He was writing a letter to the Romans about some issues that he wanted to explicate with regard to his understanding of the meaning of the incarnation, of the Christ event. In Romans chapter 14, 15, and 16, there are a number of texts which either end the epistle at 14, or end the epistle at 15, or end the epistle of, at 16. Well, who cares? 
Well, the important thing about that is, is that they were floating around not long after Paul was killed, that uh, there were two things that were important. One was a group of Christians who said, the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. And there were others who said, like Paul, no, you need to understand the continuity that has taken place here because we have not understood clearly enough that what we were reading about in our own sacred literature was pointing to this and that somehow it has reached fulfillment and climax in the person of Jesus Christ. And so you need to see how that fulfills the promises and how it is important for us as followers of Jesus to extend the values of the kingdom of God that he preached. So we have that set up now as we get ready for Christmas, for the incarnation. The incarnation comes from a Latin word which means in the meat, in the flesh. So we believe that God somehow now has become a human being. And that in his words and in his works we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. So now we move to the visitation in Luke's gospel. And I'm going to repeat myself from last week because it's an important thing to say. This has a lot to do with how we understand Mary and what it means and so forth. There's some terminology that we, I always need to make sure everybody understands. The Immaculate Conception has nothing to do with Jesus' being conceived in Mary. What is, that is properly called the virginal conception. The Immaculate Conception is a medieval doctrine that says that Mary was conceived in her mother's womb without original sin. In other words, she was born with post-baptismal grace. Episcopalians, Anglican Christians, uh, most of them do not uh, agree with the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. And we have some friends in, in, in the medieval world, namely St. Thomas Aquinas. So we don't have to bind ourselves to this idea of the Immaculate Conception. But my Old Testament professor in seminary, Joseph Hunt, who's been a Benedictine monk for 35 years, said, well, you can believe that if you want to. The virginal conception has to do with the claim that Mary conceived Jesus outside the normal means of doing this for most of us. And it is in there because it is an example of an assertion that the Holy Spirit was at work in the conception of Jesus. So let me repeat continuously again because this is important. Reginald Fuller, a, a, a great Anglican biblical scholar in the 20th century, said about the virginal conception, all that the historian can say with certainty is that the basic elements in this tradition are earlier than Matthew or Luke, 
for the name of Mary, her virginity, and the function of the Holy Spirit are common to both Matthew and Luke, who are otherwise independent of one another at this point. Many would also argue that these traditions can be traced back to the earliest Palestinian stratum of Christianity. So how does that work in the languages? In the Hebrew Bible, we read one of the lessons at Lessons and Carols last from the book of the prophet Isaiah, a famous one. Behold, a young woman shall conceive and bear in her womb a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, Mighty Counselor. We've all heard that. It's a well-known text in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew text of Isaiah, it says, Behold, an Alma shall conceive and bear in her womb a son. Alma in Hebrew means a young woman of marriageable age. So, in 286 BC, there are a lot of Jews living in Alexandria and in Egypt who didn't know how to speak Hebrew anymore or read Hebrew anymore. And they wanted their own scriptures in the language they spoke, which was Greek. And so they made a translation. And in the Septuagint text, it says, Behold, a Parthenos shall conceive, and a virgin. That's the Greek word for virgin, or one of them. And so the question is, Matthew and Luke chose to use the Septuagint and not the Hebrew Bible to reproduce this verse in the New Testament. All that means is that the the tradition has decided this is an important thing to pass on, so that's why it was passed on. Now, you need to make your own decisions about those things, frankly. But it is interesting that pains were taken to do that. And so that has something to do with the conversation that is continuously had uh, about the virginal conception and its meaning. So Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. And I thought I'd read to you some lines uh, from Father Thomas Keating. You know, he's the great... uh, Authority, or one of them on centering prayer and the way in which uh, that, that this, this method of uh, spiritual practice. And so people tend to focus on this. But he's a Trappist monk. And uh, he, he understands something in our Western spiritual tradition called Lectio Divina, spiritual reading, which principally meant reading the Bible on a regular basis, and thinking about it, and praying about it, spiritual reading. For a long time in Western Christianity, that was the only spiritual practice that a lot of religious engaged in, people in convents and in monasteries. So he's somebody who has thought and meditated and read about this For a long time, he's now just turned 90, so he's been a monk for a long, long time. And here are some of the things he says about the Annunciation and the Visitation. The Annunciation slash Visitation is about eternal time 
breaking into chronological time. So I've told you about this in the, in the New Testament. Two words. Chronos, time, and kairos, time. So what's occurring here, Keating says, as he reflects on this passage, is that we have now seen the incarnation as something that is kairos coming into chronos, present to the world from a source outside. You know, a lot of people don't think there can be anything outside. It all has some sort of a cause. And in fact, we claim as people of faith that we do. Keating says this idea of under, this understanding through thinking depends on our personal contribution as living cells in the body of Christ. We are lived in by God. We are not alone. God is with us not as a statue or picture, but as energy already ready to direct all our actions moment by moment. Prayer is the action that sensitizes us to the divine energy, which Paul calls spirit, which we translate as God. So when he says prayer there, he means meditation, Lectio Divina, and the public liturgy that we all attend once a week, or try, we hope, to do that. That's important. Mary did not go to Elizabeth to evangelize or counsel her. She went to prepare diapers. The point he's making here is that the understanding of the presence in our interior life of the Spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us, is a process that reveals itself often in the most ordinary quotidian things, not in always the great and grand things. In seminary, Father Parsons, who was the dean when I was there for the first year, always had, you had to take, you had to take a class called uh, how to say your prayers 1A, but we wouldn't say that in seminary. We'd say aesthetical theology. So he said, all of us need to understand on a daily basis the need to fulfill the duties of state. And that sounds sort of political or international relations-y. But what it has to do in the spiritual life, in the great tradition in, in Western Christianity, is get up and brush your teeth. That we need to do that, that's part of the way. Keating thinks about that and says, following Mary's example, the fundamental practice for healing the wounds of the false self-system is to fulfill the duties of our job in life. The duties of state. Just as a reminder, he speaks about the false self system, that all human beings uh, have uh, rooted deep in, in the depth psychology of the human person three centers of energy 
which he calls our emotional programs for happiness. And they always revolve around security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. So all of these things are necessary, being able to balance them to be a human being. They're part of who we are, part of our hard wiring. But all of us know that security and survival, affection and esteem and power and control can get off the rails and run us in a way that is not spiritually uplifting but spiritually destructive. And Mary's is talking about fulfilling the duties of our job in life. Mary's voice caused the babe to leap in Elizabeth's womb. And Mary's voice transformed the potential, that potential, in another person without her saying anything, without evangelizing, without giving advice about how to live her life, because it connected Mary's spirit with her spirit, which was participation in God's spirit, and how we understand what that means. So she was able to effect a transformation. A transformation in Elizabeth and also the possibility through that transmission to awaken in her her own potentiality to become divine. Remember Keating again, we are not God, but our true self is God. And so the process of understanding and meditating on that profound reality is at the center of the Christian faith and life. So this week, uh, I have always believed that uh, Mary is an example of the highest and best of humanity. I believe that the cult of Mary is the result of some things that got out of whack about the inability of certain Christian groups to understand truly and deeply the humanity of Jesus. And her mother, his mother, was the one who is accessible in that regard because we all have one. Remember a few weeks ago I told you about listening to Cardinal Sunens 35 years ago, the Cardinal Archbishop of Belgium. And he said at the Trinity Conference in Milwaukee, if you reduce Jesus Christ to a theological concept, a theological concept doesn't have a mother. And so in some way that, that's the power of that connection. So this week, see if you can follow Mary's example uh, to uh, transmit to one another, to, to others, uh, the practical wisdom you've learned in your life, not giving people advice about how to live their lives. Unwanted advice has the odor of ancient fish. <laughs> but to think about how important it is to be able in love to convey uh, what you've learned, what you've learned about being a human being and how important that is. In last week's gospel, one of the great lines was, was in it, and I'll just read it to you and end. For nothing will be impossible with God. Amen.